Hey, really quick, before we get into the podcast, we aim to bring you the most practical, impartial advice in cybersecurity. So if you like what we do and you want to help us out, please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now. Okay, let's get into the episode. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. This podcast is my attempt to document lessons from cybersecurity experts who can go deeper than most on critical topics. My hope is that you use these insights to fortify your business and grow your career, and maybe one day partner with SIFT to select your next cybersecurity vendor. I hope you share and enjoy. Scott, thank you for joining the No BS Cybersecurity Podcast. It's an honor to have you on, man. You've got incredible background and experience and, and very unique perspective just given your field. We talk to a lot of security practitioners, CISOs, different things like that. And I'm really excited to kind of dive in and get your perspective on the industry, some of the trends you're seeing, and maybe a few war stories from your experience. For the guests that are just learning about who you are for the first time, tell us who you are, what you do, and kind of your journey to get to this point. Certainly. So I am what I would describe as a privacy and data security attorney. My entire practice is focused on helping companies and organizations prepare for and respond to security incidents and security breaches. And when we say security breaches, we're really referring to like cyber attacks, data breaches and the like. So that's kind of what I do day in and day out. I handle anywhere from two to 300 breach investigations every single year. So it's been keeping us very, very busy over the past couple of years. Absolutely. And so, first of all, how long have you been doing this? A very long time. So it's probably been about, gosh, about probably about 10, 15 years or so that I've been in this industry. I started out running a small computer consulting company that just kind of helped fix uh, networking and computer security issues. And then a transition to after going to law school and becoming an attorney, I was able to leverage that technical background with the legal aspect of things. Now, when I first went to law school, this idea of cybersecurity and privacy was not a thing. It was not even a practice group. There was very little statutes or frameworks that kind of governed how organizations protect information. It was really kind of the Wild West, so to speak. What happened from there is, well, first, I think HIPAA and the health information uh, laws were really the first framework at the federal level. And then it flowed from there. You see all the state breach notification laws that California was the first that really implemented one of those. And then all the rest of the states kind of followed suit. And now here we are today where cybersecurity breaches are happening on your daily basis. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how the industry has changed and evolved over time. You have such a crazy blend of expertise from understanding the technical aspects to the legal side of things. And this is the No BS Cybersecurity Podcast. So I want to ask for some clarity. And it's really around the SEC's new regulations. And they're asking companies to report within four days a material breach, but material is not really defined. And so I want to get your perspective on what the heck is a material breach? How do we define that? What are they asking for? So that is a little tricky. First and foremost, from a material aspect of it, the way it's interpreted is really is it a material event 
that an investor would want to know about or take into consideration for their investments. So from a material component, there are some data breaches which somebody may say, well, we feel that that's material. We feel you should have notified and situations say, well, it's not material. So there is some dispute and considering how new it is, I continue to believe that there will be additional disputes as to what qualifies as a material event. Generally, what we look at when we're evaluating whether a material event is from a cyber perspective is kind of the overall size of the impact. What is the financial impact to the organization? Is it a small notification? Are we talking a couple thousand individuals? Or are we talking several million individuals? How did it impact the business? Did it impact the third party or not? You can look at, for example, some of the more recent AK filings, and you could see when an organization felt, okay, this is a material event. One example, which is not one of my clients, was kind of like MGM, where it seriously impacted their operations, that cyber event. So they ended up filing an AK. You do see situations where one company may be impacted by a 100,000 person breach. And they say, well, even at 100,000, that's a small fraction of our customer base. Therefore, it's a material breach. Might not be the said for maybe a smaller company. Well, no, that impacts every single one of our clients and therefore we're notified. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it is relative, right? When you use a word like material. I do want to add one bit of clarification. So when we talk about notifying, we're talking about disclosure pursuant to the SEC rules. Okay, so that's an AK filing of some sort. There are separate notification statutes that are still require notification to individuals. So I didn't want you, even an immaterial event or a small event is still going to require notification to the individuals who've had their personal information impacted. So they have to notify the individuals, but they don't have to notify customers that maybe weren't impacted, even if something did happen? Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Do these regulations impact every organization from the Fortune 500 all the way down to the mom and pop floral shop? So the SEC regulations, no. So you were talking about the new SEC reporting regulations will only apply to publicly traded companies. However, the notification requirements I mentioned previously, those impact every organization from very large corporations to the mom and pop shops. And the ones probably that are impacted the greatest for a lot of these security breaches as well, simply because they don't have the resources. And if they're down for a week, that could be the end of their business, whereas uh, maybe a publicly traded company can weather that storm. Yeah, absolutely. For the smaller businesses, it sounds great that there's something in place that says you have to notify customers if their information was leaked or, or involved in a data breach of some sort. I mean, it sounds great, but is there a way that it's able to be enforced? The notification requirements, whether that can be enforced? I mean, there are fines and penalties associated with it the No BS podcast, I will tell you that it's very difficult. Well, there's two folds. Number one, it's difficult for, let's say, an individual to pinpoint where their information was stolen. So if I encounter identity theft on my account, it's very hard for me to identify which company who I gave my social security number to, which one was ultimately responsible. And in the eyes of the consumer, it's generally the entity that notified me last regardless of whether that's the actual entity responsible for it. So that is one trouble. And now on that same lines, though, 
from an individual perspective, I'm not responsible as an individual for unauthorized charges, even if I'm not notified. So this whole idea of we want to make sure that consumers are notified, it really doesn't impact their individual liability. They still need to monitor their credit file and on the lookout for fraud. But if the company responsible for the breach doesn't notify me or takes two months to notify me, that doesn't impact my liability as an individual. So there's a connection issue of how do you attribute who was responsible for the breach? Now, getting back to your other question, a company that experienced an incident, what is how do you enforce that notification requirement? Well, I'm sure that there are companies out there that do not follow the law. I mean, that's a problem for every sort of thing. There are fines, penalties, and potential very large judgments that can be levied against those organizations if they choose not to notify. You can take a look at the most recent example. And again, I can mention this because it's not my client, but you look at the Uber situation where chief information security officer did not notify when they had an obligation to do so. And they faced very large fines and penalties associated with that, as well as criminal charges against their CISO. So those sorts of ramifications and consequences do exist. But I will tell you, it is difficult if that information is not easily attributable to a certain organization that has experienced it. Now, I've had some clients say, well, what's the ramifications of not notifying? And I've kind of outlined the notifications. And then we talked about, well, how are they going to find out about it? In addition to the causation issues, we've seen had whistleblower complaints, disgruntled employees who they know about that data breach and they want to get back in their employer. We've seen situations where data is leaked, where a threat actor steals data and then eventually posts it online or they brag about it online. And that's a real easy way for somebody to learn about their information being breached is when it's published on the dark web and a criminal actor saying, hey, look, we stole this from XYZ company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you hear your employees are your biggest threat surface, right? Or your biggest vulnerability. And even carries over. And if you're trying to cover up a breach, your employees are still your biggest risk because they might feel morally obligated to blow the whistle on that if they think you're doing something shady. I'm curious, though, as a consumer, if there's an attack that impacts five different businesses that have my information and all five businesses, they're required to notify me individually, right? And but there's no way to know who's ultimately responsible, right? If I was like, hey, I want to lawyer up and go after these guys because I want to pursue some legal action, let's say, right? I don't know if anyone would really do that. But if they did, do you have to go after all five? I mean, how does that, is it just impossible to even do something like that? So when we're dealing with a individual claim and individual litigation, there's a couple things that they need to prove. Number one is causation. In other words, they need to prove that you were the approximate cause of their harm. And then they also need to prove that they've been harmed. Now, a lot of individuals, they will get a data breach notification letter and they'll want to go after the entity that notified them. The problem is that a lot of these individuals haven't really been harmed. They've been notified, but it's not like you're notified and all of a sudden you're out $10,000 or something like that. If you have an unauthorized charge on your credit card, you call up the credit card company, you say this charge was unauthorized, and they reverse it. 
and you're not harmed in any way. If you have a situation where you have an account that's opened up in your name, we've seen like somebody open up a cell phone account or a cable account. You call up those companies, say, look, this isn't me. These are unauthorized. And it might take a phone, a couple of phone calls and some paperwork. But at the end of the day, you're not charged for those. So, and this is also where I'm representing my clients and working to help minimize the potential damages to those individuals. So to address your question, that those individuals have to first have some harm. And most cases, they're not harmed. If you are harmed, and I can give you some examples, such as let's say they they suffer some reputational harm or they lose out on some money that they're not able to be reimbursed, then you can absolutely make a claim for those types of expenses. But again, a lot of the individuals are, when they do sue, they're suing for kind of potential harm or, well, I might face additional risk of identity theft in the future. And if you look at a lot of the class action settlements that have occurred in this area, it's generally those same ideas like, well, you, I'm susceptible to more harm in the future. Therefore, as part of the settlement, they're provided additional credit monitoring or identity theft protection services. And that's how they essentially settle the case on the class-wide basis. But generally, an individual who is harmed, you almost do have to either pick one to go after or say, well, you're the proximate cause of this harm, or I guess you could go after all five of them, but you're going to face the same causation and damages challenge, uh, proving that aspect of the case. Yeah. So good luck, guys. If you're going down that path, make sure that you actually have some way to show that you were harmed. And if you weren't, then just clean it up. And if you are harmed, by all means, share that documentation. Most of my clients, when I'm counseling them, if a consumer or an individual comes and say, look, I've been harmed. Here's the documentation, my, my out of expenses uh, costs associated with it. We usually evaluate them. And if they're reasonable, legitimate, we'll pay it. But often, I'll give you a couple of examples. I've had one individual came back and said, look, I had to freeze all my credit and I had to send overnight FedEx forms immediately to TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. So I'm charging you the postage for making those notices. Well, yeah, that's a concrete, clear example. Had the receipts and we ended up paying those costs. Another example is I had one person who just said, I want $20,000. I said, well, what's that based off of? Well, like that's what I think I was harmed and what I'm going to encounter in the future. It's like they can't really articulate how they just pulled that number out of thin air. And that's the type of situation where we would say, well, okay, well, no, we're not going to reimburse that, those sorts of costs. Hey, it's James here. Really quick, well done for making it to the midpoint of the episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, remember to give us a follow. And if you're really enjoying it, please drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Now let's get back to the episode. It's not even a reimbursement, right? It's just like a... It's an extortion payment. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And so I think maybe that's the line that makes it a little clearer between whether you have a case or not is, are you asking for a reimbursement for something that actually happened that you have no other way of getting that money back? Or are you just claiming some hypothetical future scenario that's probably not going to work? Is that draw a pretty clear line kind of at a high level? I would say so, at least from the reimbursement and claims perspective. 
I mean, there's more factors that go into the analysis, including whether or not their information was actually harmed. I've seen situations where we do notifications and somebody will demand reimbursement for costs associated with credit card fraud. And then we tell them, look, we don't even have your credit card number. That wasn't part of the incident. That's It's just not connected to it. So you do want to make sure that it is tied to the incident as much as possible because some people don't understand the process. Some people, we may notify them of, here's your health insurance information was potentially compromised. And then we notify them and then they go out and buy credit monitoring services. And the problem is that credit monitoring services does nothing to prevent the type of fraud that might encounter if your health insurance number was compromised. It's just not the same. So you do need to tie it to the actual event and the data elements that were impacted for that particular breach. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to move on to what are you thinking about right now? What are you researching? What's captured your attention kind of when you trying to prepare for the future? Like, What's top of mind for you? So certainly. So uh, the biggest risk, well, I'll tell you, we're always evaluating what are the new ways in which companies can have their information breached, uh, stolen, and how can we best prepare against that? One of the things we're working towards on and keeping in mind in the future is kind of the ramifications of AI and how will that impact from a cybersecurity perspective. Now, AI is being applied to a bunch of different avenues. It's being applied on the security side. Companies are utilizing AI to detect network intrusions. They're now at the same time Uh, Threat actors are utilizing AI in order to help find vulnerabilities in code, in software, in network compliance. And then we also see it on from the fraudster aspect of things, which is not more technical, but still committing fraud. We're seeing AI being used to generate more targeted uh, social engineering campaigns, phishing messages. We've heard of allegations of deep fake Um, audio and video being used to impersonate executives so that you can facilitate those sort of kind of fraudulent wire transfer scams. We've heard rumors, although I haven't heard it myself, of there used to be a scam where you would get a call from a kidnapper who says, hey, we have your grandson or granddaughter, and if you don't pay us, they're in Europe and they need money right away. And they target the elderly. So it's traditionally the grandmothers, grandfathers. And we've heard rumors that they're utilizing sort of AI to replicate their voice, replicate their image to help facilitate those scams. So that's at kind of the individual level, but they also, the same scams apply at the corporate level. So that's what we're looking at in terms of kind of future threats and how can we best utilize both AI for both offensive and defensive capabilities for network intrusions. Yeah. And when you're looking at it from a technical standpoint, like in terms of the tools and the different ways that we can use AI in cybersecurity or defense and and identity and things like that, or are you looking at it more from the lens of lawyer and saying, well, we need to prepare for how we're going to legally position ourselves and defend? I mean, which bucket are you kind of talking about here? So we're thinking about both, primarily, at least for what is most top of mind for my purposes has been from a technical side of things and preparing for those types of attacks. But at the same time, we're also evaluating frameworks for using AI in a business 
that is also in a sound and secure manner. There are examples of uh, companies using AI. They're providing trade secret information or proprietary software information to AI, and the AI is helping them code. They're helping them evaluate certain strategies, but then they're not taking the consideration that that information that you're feeding AI is generally included and incorporated as part of that AI's kind of a brain going forward. And it can't always separate that. So what we've seen is if you give confidential information to AI, they incorporate that into their functionality. Then another user with potentially another organization or company can use that same AI, maybe not directly, but they kind of the AI incorporates that sort of findings. And I can give you kind of a hypothetical situation that we've considered. If you have an AI that's evaluating software code and they're saying, okay, AI, this is the help me create the software code to prevent, you know, a outside third party network intrusion. And it helps you kind of draft the code. Well, then some other third party says, Hey, I'm trying to penetration test a company that uses XYZ firewall. What sort of attacks and vulnerabilities might be used against that particular firewall? Well, that same software code is incorporated into kind of the thinking and understanding of AI. They can now apply and tap into that same code that wasn't intended to be used outside of the software development side, but now it can be used to potentially generate attacks and exploits. Yeah. So once it goes into the knowledge base, it's accessible to other people that are accessing that same knowledge base. Generally, yes. Now, I can't speak to every single AI implementation. But that's been the concern and that's been demonstrated as a risk of using AI in some of those situations. That makes a lot of sense. And it helps me understand why companies are creating their own knowledge database and then putting LLMs on top of it to make sure that they're working in a silo. Are there limitations to the capabilities and outputs that they can expect if they're kind of just using their own internal knowledge base? I expect that there are. I mean, I'm not an AI software expert, but I fully anticipate that there are. I couldn't tell you specifically which one, how it, what sort of limitations they are. Are there any sort of legal guidelines for businesses today? If they're like, hey, we want to adopt AI, we want to be early, we want to implement some of this stuff. From a legal standpoint, I mean, what do you tell customers? How do they protect themselves? So it's going to depend on the specific usage. But the problem is, is that law in general is always slow from the technical side. So we're always playing catch up on the law. The technical innovations far exceed the understanding of the legal side. So what ends up happening when there is inevitably disputes and disagreements regarding how something should be applied and what is permissible and what's not is the legal industry tends to look backwards and tries to find similar situations and apply historical frameworks to new interventions. That has a number of limitations. And quite frankly, one of the things that we're struggling with on the AI is this idea of overall ownership of the information. If you have hire an employee, and that employee on your dime creates an innovation or development, Typically, that becomes that's owned by the company. It's kind of a, a work for product intellectual property issue. Now, the legal industry is struggling with 
how do you deal with that same situation when it's not a real life person, when it's a machine, and especially when that machine has built up their understanding based off of some public and some proprietary data sets. A lot of the AI goes out to these public sources on the internet and kind of sucks all that information. Now, if that had been an individual, you'd say, okay, well, that's just somebody learning and understanding. We can still claim ownership of the ultimate work product. But when it's an AI, they're saying, well, no, just that's an AI machine doing it. You don't all of a sudden begin to retain ownership of that work product because it's based off of these other data sources. So that's, I think, the biggest struggle right now is the intellectual property and attribution and ownership of the outcome of whatever AI generates. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much change going on right now and so many different narratives. And one of them, Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, he mentioned that he feels like in America, the legal system and and the government is really suffocating innovation and that it, it may lead in the future to innovation moving to a a different country entirely. Do you feel like a good balance right now on government and regulation with innovation? Or are we trending in a direction where we may be slowing the innovation in America to such a degree that it may move? So that remains a, a risk and concern. As of right now, though, I mean, there's been talk of kind of regulation and frameworks to impose on the AI space. But Nothing has really been developed or passed that I feel would hamper that innovation. But that's not to say it couldn't in the future. Right now, we still have quite a bit of flexibility in terms of what we can do with AI. Other countries are evaluating frameworks as well. The EU are evaluating AI frameworks. The US is evaluating them as well, what can and can't be done with them. So until we see what those frameworks look like, it's hard to say whether or not it's going to hamper innovation. As of right now, none of my clients have really seen any roadblocks in terms of that innovation and the products that they're developing. It's usually they're trying to go fast and break things and try to gain a foothold in the industry first and then deal with the regulations on the back end. Yeah, good thing they have you in their corner because they're going to need it. And every startup that that wants to grow and do something big is going to need people like you in their corner. And I don't know if there's a lot of people like you, Scott, with the kind of a foot in both sides. It seems like a really unique skill set and, and your customers are, are pretty lucky to be able to work with you. Well, for the folks that want to learn more and want to follow you, where can they find you? So you can find my information. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, now X. You can also pull up my firm profile at uh, bakerlaw.com and you can get in touch with me that way. We also publish a data privacy monitor which is kind of a log on our website, which talks about latest uh, innovations and developments in both the cybersecurity world and the privacy and tech innovation side as well. So Beautiful. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Extremely enlightening. If you're a business and you need help, I'd definitely go to Scott. He's the man. So thanks, Scott. Thank you so much. No BS Cybersecurity is brought to you by Sift.ai. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. On behalf of the team here at Sift, thank you for learning with me.